Timon Terhoven and Rod Spikes. Welcome to the One Planet podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. You know, we already think of bicycles as, of course, being carbon neutral and friendly, but of course, you with Aero Spikes take it to another level, this circular economy. Just tell us a little bit about the origins of your company and its mission and in your journey as part of this process. Yeah, of course. Our company actually is based on something I came across during a, a previous career. I was working at a, as a strategy consultant for one of the, the big consulting firms. And uh, we did a project for a car manufacturer. And this was around uh, a process called remanufacturing. And this is 11, 12 years ago. The circular concept didn't exist yet. But of course, sustainability was growing, you know, this awareness for sustainability. So what this manufacturer was doing, and many others are actually, is, is taking back their old products and taking them apart to the last bolt and nut. And these products were car engines, gearboxes, alternators, heavy big car parts, and then building up these products to a brand new state again. They would do machine, the individual parts. They had all of these processes, cleaning processes, and then they would assemble these parts to new quality again. Actually, as turned out, these parts were more reliable. So these engines were more reliable than the new engines, which were the same engines. And this just blew me away. This is a very, very green concept. Only about 20% of the energy is used to make a new energy materials are used to make a new remanufactured engine compared to a normal one. And the quality statistically is even, even better. So this really stick with me. And I, after the project, I always looked at other industries where we could apply that, what would be a nice product. And also a product where I felt it was necessary to bring this to the public, to make people aware that this is just possible and actually preferable over, over new. We also advised this car manufacturer to put these remanufactured engines in new cars. But of course, this was, they weren't going to do that. This was too crazy of an idea. You can't put a not new engine in a new car. So this really led to debate, discussions about you know, what is new, right? What do we think is new? And this is, this is a psychology thing that we, I think over the last 10 years, have really played with within Roots. And we've really learned a lot when do consumers see something as new or value it as, as new. So we, I had that concept in mind and I looked at the different industries and being from Amsterdam or not from Amsterdam, but living in Amsterdam, there is a particular problem. We have so many bikes that there are a lot of old bikes standing around, which need to be cleared out by the city because they are so low value that people don't bother. Maybe the lock is broken. They can't open it anymore. They just get another bicycle somewhere else. Maybe they've moved and just left it. And these are called orphaned bikes. So bikes with yeah, we don't know who the owner is. And this is actually a, a waste problem. The city of Amsterdam processes 80,000 of these bikes every year. There's a, a really big place just outside of Amsterdam, which uh, I think it's like a two soccer fields. And there are like thousands of bikes standing there waiting to be processed because the, the owners can claim them back. And there's a, a stream of those bikes, which are just, you know, end of life, end of economic life. Nobody's going to repair them anymore. We thought, okay, we think we can focus on this waste stream and solve two problems in one blow. You know, solve the, the orphan bikes problem and not have them destroyed, which was now happening, but actually use the parts that we can use and build brand new bikes again and demonstrate, show what is possible with this waste stream. So that's where we started. We started with an, sort of an upcycling idea. Let's generate this bike waste into brand new bikes again, but not by, you know, recycling them, but by reusing reusable parts. And in that way, actually, we achieve between 30 to 40%
circularity. We still do this. If you look at our website, you see our collection bikes, our designer bikes. Those are all made from old frames, old front forks and other parts from old bikes from Amsterdam and other cities in the Netherlands. But then, of course, our journey progressed a little bit and we started looking at bike fleets. This was back in, say, 2014. There weren't so many bike fleets around, but in the Netherlands you had, this is before all the free-floating bike-sharing programs, they, they didn't exist yet. But in the Netherlands you did have one big fleet. Every station in the Netherlands has, train station has a local bike fleet and you can use it to get to your appointment and back. And this fleet is owned by the National Railway Company. So we were a, a three-man company at that point. And we managed to pursue over, it took, it took, it took us more than a year, but we managed to pursue this company to you know, do a pilot with us, to let us show them what their old disc bikes, which were beyond repair, could be turned into again. And we did a, this pilot, you know, went into operation and into running business. And for years, we processed all their old bikes. So thousands of those bikes were remanufactured and went into their fleet better than new. They were actually upgraded also in design and in some parts. So this was a really nice step. And by then also our business had grown enough to set up our own factory in the north of Amsterdam, which became a social a social factory. We call it the fair factory because it really answers, you know, or let's say really executes both of our ideals, which is on the one side, circular, sustainable, and the other side, social. So we want to generate work for people who have less opportunity for work with our project. And we really, really did that well with the factory. And now we've, a couple of years later, we've grown again. And we are actually training mechanics to not only work at us, but also at other companies. We have this whole training scheme going, you know, working with local cities to do that. But it's really also part of our mission. We really see that when you make circular product, this is better for the local economy than a, not, than a linear product, which is often made in a low labor cost country and is not often repaired because it's just too cheap. So if you make a nice circularly designed product, uh, this will generate more local work and what will go around will be repaired more often. So we see it all, it's all part of the same goal and same idea. In the, over the last couple of years, having done work for this particular fleet for the railway company, but also many other fleets by now, rental fleets. Lots of work, which you don't really see from our website. It's something we do as a business to business proposition. But we've had, we've experienced all the problems that all these different parties have. All these different companies have, are using a particular design for a, of a bicycle for a particular goal, usually in some sort of service proposition, product as a service proposition. And we see where they run into trouble because that's when they ask us to help. So we see what parts of design are successful. We also see what a lot of cost is generated in their operations. So since 2016, we've been thinking about the ideal circular bicycle. It's a, it's a logical flow. We started at looking at current bikes, old bikes, what can we reuse? Can we upcycle? How can we improve it? Then we did it for fleets. All the bikes are the same, so you can make... Yeah, you can set up more processes to salvage parts, right? So you can increase your circularity percentage to 70 or even even have one fleet where we could increase it to 85%. 85% of the mass of the parts of the old bike is used on the new bike. And then we recycle the other 15%. So circularity is really even higher. But still, these processes were relatively intensive, relatively costly. So we, we were thinking about, okay, what would the ideal circular bike look like where we could achieve a higher circularity percentage, but also achieve it at a price and with a process that would be scalable to a much bigger part of the market? 
because that's how we see we can change this industry. We started thinking about that, and a lot of a lot has to do with the total cost of ownership. If you look at the current current bicycle, whether you own it as a person or whether a, a business owns it and it's part of a fleet, and still you have a certain write-off on the bicycle, right? So it depreciates every year, and then you have the the maintenance bill, which increases every year, right? With the um, introduction of e-bikes, or let's say the explosion of, of e-bikes, this has become a much more urgent problem because the depreciation is very high and the maintenance bill is also, when something is wrong, a lot higher. Complexity is also higher. So serviceability is lower. So we really thought, okay, how can we have biggest impact? And with this new explosion of e-bikes, obviously we can have most impact by designing an e-bike with an optimal total cost of ownership. So we set out to do maybe something first to the impact of these e-bikes. The e-bike, like you said in your introduction, Mia, is often perceived as a nice green alternative and solution. Of course, if you compare a car, it certainly is. But many of the e-bikes produced right now are not of the highest quality, but are mostly optimized on price. And many of the manufacturers have no, well, old manufacturers, have no interest in making the e-bike that lasts the longest. They have an interest in making an e-bike which performs its function well enough to satisfy the customer, but then to have the customer come back in let's say, uh, for five years when the product, uh, the maintenance becomes too expensive or, where the, or when the product is outdated. It's been superseded by bikes with a longer range or battery life or other better performance or different design. But of course, the manufacturer doesn't mind. It's all part of keeping this linear economy production and sales model going. To make a product which is successful, to make a circular product which is successful, we really said, okay, this product must not only be circular, must not only have a higher quality or an equal quality, it must just be better in every sense. So also economically, this must be a superior product because that's, that's the only way it will get a broad adoption. So this is, uh, this is what we have been doing since, or in the last two years, we have a team, we've set up a team of bike experts, mechanical engineers, electric engineers, data scientists to really develop a solution which is optimized for total cost of ownership. Our future consumers will benefit because we can offer them a better price because the service costs and the depreciation are lower because this is a circular product. So we can use it longer. Uh, and I can't, reveal every detail right now because we're going to launch next year. But this is really the current current work we're doing. And I can say that we are now a few prototypes along and are very close to conducting a pilot in the last month of this year to test our pre-production models. And then early next year, we'll have come out with the news around this bike and have a very nice presentation and an early bird launch for people who want to try this bike first. That is wonderful and quite a fascinating overview of your company and your journey. I've learned a lot from your discussion. I, I sort of want to get a feeling around Amsterdam, especially its culture and history, because like when I was there, there are very few cars and I basically biked everywhere. It was very enjoyable experience. And I kind of want to ask, what are the cultural and historical backgrounds for the Netherlands that made it so bike-friendly? And what lessons can uh, car-dependent countries like America learn from Amsterdam to promote sustainable transportation? Yeah, that's a good question. Culturally, 
the Netherlands, I think there's a large part of geography going on. So the Netherlands are very flat. So Netherlands is part of a delta, like a multi-river delta. So really 80% of the country is very flat and is very enabling for a simple bicycle, right? It takes not much effort to get somewhere. I think our government just caught on early to that. And since the 19, let's say when the big changes, and I'm not an expert on, on this field, but when the big changes in the infrastructure came to accommodate the car, mass adoption of the car between uh, like maybe started 1930 and then, but mass adoption was really in the 50s when, when in the 60s when you had the first traffic jams and all that, that kind of stuff. This is when cities were rearranged to accommodate the car. And also in the Netherlands went far too far in that. In, in retrospect, we all accommodated the car far too much. But the bicycle has always kept its place. So there have been separate bicycle lanes in these, in these city layouts. And this is really what has made it safe to drive in the Netherlands with a bicycle because you drive at your own speed. You don't drive between the cars. So it's made it safe and comfortable. People generally don't wear helmets cycling in the Netherlands, which a lot of other countries do, of course. But the bicycle has always been part of practical transport, where many other countries, the bicycle is a sports item, right? You go out on a Saturday and you do your, your exercise on the bike, or maybe you do cycle to work, but then you, you gear up, you suit up your sports gear, and when you get to your work, you take a shower and because the bicycle is sports. And in the Netherlands, it's been more a utility commuting tool um, where you don't cycle so fast. You don't need to. You just cycle your 10, 15 kilometers to work. That's already quite far. Most people don't cycle that far to work, actually, maybe only five. Also, our cities are relatively small. You know, we only have a few big cities. So I think all of that has contributed to enabling that. At the same time, there are many people who drive the car to work. We have traffic jams just like every other country. But within the cities, the bicycle has always done well and it's actually increasingly doing well. So we have, for example, in Amsterdam, we have almost like bike traffic jams. When you're at the traffic light, you really stand in line. You just don't make the traffic light because everybody has to start cycling. And one of the things I really like, a couple of years back, I, was, I lived at the Agenda Center and our factory was in Amsterdam, in the northern part of Amsterdam. And I cycled there every day, busy street called the Rosengracht in, in Amsterdam, it's in the center. But it was really this classical car lane. And uh, Amsterdam has, has had, in the 50s, I think, Amsterdam set up this star network between the 50s and 70s, the star network for cars to just buzz into the city, into the center. And this Rosengracht was part of that. So taxis were flying by at like 70 kilometers an hour. And there was a cycling path next to it. But I had a quite sporty bicycle, so I usually went a little faster than the other cyclists. So that meant you had to go in between the taxis and then back. And it was quite dangerous, certainly at night or when the rain is out, not so visible. But now recently, I think what Amsterdam and also other cities are doing very well is they are slowing down the car traffic. And this means that we're getting more of a common space where cyclists and cars mix. And right now, during the three, four years I made that trip every day, this changed. And it really changed how you cycle. Because there were too many cyclists on the cycling path. It's only two meters wide. People would just, you know, the stream would become wider. But now it wasn't a problem anymore because the cars are only allowed to go 30. So they sort of, all of a sudden, these speeds, they meet. And you, when you're a fast cyclist or when you drive a city e-bike, which is like a 25 kilometer an hour e-bike, you can certainly merge into that car traffic and, and be in there and be in there safely. I think this is really the, the future of cities where you get this, all this asphalt, which has been, all these roads that have been put in there for the cars, where they get given back to the 
slower traffic again and cars and bikes but also transport bikes cargo bikes my everyday actually most of the days when i go to the factory i first drop off my kids and i have a cargo bike for that like a family cargo bike and actually what we even do people one street further down they have kids who go to the same school so i don't take two i take four kids on this cargo bike three in the front of the cargo bike one in the back and we are five people on one e-bike going to school and that's just fantastic. Think of the CO2 saved of people who would otherwise go with two cars to bring those, those kids to school. So I think that's, and it, you f- I feel safe. The speeds are not high. There are separate cycling paths. And I think Amsterdam can do a lot to even improve it. But I think many other cities are at the moment more focused on it and can probably make those changes even quicker. If you see what's now happening now also during Corona. In, for example, London, where there are very quick reaction to set up biking paths to make space in Paris, where, of course, these maximum speeds are going down, which is very recent and very, I mean, I love it. And it's a necessity and it will make people adopt bikes even more. When I was first biking through the streets of Amsterdam back in 2018, looking for examples of circular economy, I never thought I was actually riding one. That's right, the shared bike I was using was a Rose bike. But my formal introduction to the company wouldn't come years later as I researched the circular economy and bicycle industry. Among all the companies that I looked at, Rose bike was the only one that jumped out because how well it weaved the concept of circularity and sustainability into the fabrics of its business model. One of the central tenets of a circular economy is eliminating waste the belief that all things can have a second life and be regenerative. What better expression of this belief is there than creating a new bike out of a thrown away or discarded one? Bicycles have always been seen as one of, if not the most, sustainable form of transportation there are. But as we can see from the example of Rose Bike, even this type of transportation may present environmental challenges and leave room for improvements. In addition, I also love the way Rose Bike interact with its people. In an increasingly competitive world, with AI replacing low-skilled labor, Rose Bike commits to the philosophy of a social enterprise, providing training and a second chance to people with poor job prospects in their fair factory. Indeed, we see this widening gap between rich and poor all around the world, fueling extremist sentiments. If we are to truly achieve a sustainable future, We must not leave anyone behind. It is time for companies and civil societies to contribute more towards both social and environmental sustainability and address our ecological challenges along with mounting social inequalities. On another note, bicycles are nothing without a place to ride them. When I came back from Amsterdam to the States, where riding a bike is more of an alternative transportation than part of the mainstream, it really occurred to me just how different these places are. This addiction to cars is not unique to the US. In China, back when my parents were getting married, a bicycle was considered part of a proof of financial well-being. Now the role of bicycles has been usurped by cars. This cultural transition can be seen as a proof of economic growth, but it is also a shift to a more carbon-intensive lifestyle. And this happens both in the US and China. As cars become the king of transportation, other more sustainable transportation methods like buses, biking, and walking are pushed to the sidelines. 
Similarly, their supportive infrastructure also deteriorates, not unlike shrinking natural habitats. If we wish to let our society and urban environment become more sustainable, we must pay greater attention to infrastructures that support a sustainable living style. I'm glad to see the sustainable transportation methods are becoming more prominent in cities like Seattle and Shenzhen. Sustainable transportation is also gaining attraction as cities adapt to climate change. Still, we must do more to create a better habitat for us by investing in sustainable transportation methods like bicycles. You know, we we're discussing a bit about like a social aspect, the product aspect of making bikes circular, so they're not it'll become orphaned. But there seems like there's so many other positive advantages to this because if you're bicycling and hopefully it's a part of a circular bike. You are also noticing your environment more. You're more part of the landscape. You're more. You're less isolated. There's all sorts of psychological effects. You're less isolated where you're in the car, maybe public transport, but you're shut out from other people. So it, I think that it also influences our other consumer decisions when you tend to think more selfishly when you're in that enclosed space of an automobile, and you can think about it having a lot of different repercussions in terms of our whole our consumer lives. And and it's just how lovely, you know. I wish that everyone, all cities. Were more friendly to cycling, like Amsterdam, where a family can go with a cargo bike. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of us do. I mean, I live in Paris, so we, as you say, we have these these new initiatives. But in America, particular certain cities, they were really designed. They came to being around the automobile, and、yep. so it's a little bit tougher for them. No,、oh, absolutely true, and I have examples of both things. Actually, I think people really mind really shifts when you get into a car. I think two months back, I. I was in the car going to a location, a location in Delft in Amsterdam, and I was cut off by a car. And I looked to the side, and it was quite just a driver, and it was my neighbor. And we were like for forty kilometers from home, but it was just my neighbor who like turned into this road rage person all of a sudden. She's lovely, but now she turned into a road rage person. So it definitely changes your your behavior. And another aspect of cycling is it's just if you cycle every day, you surely. If you cycle five kilometers, you don't need an e-bike. You can do it on a normal bike, and it's just really good for you. The rest of the day, you tend to sit behind a computer, or many people do. It's lovely to do that, and I do a bit more sports than that, but not much. You cycle most of the days, and it's just just good exercise. So yeah, no, I I, I totally I totally agree. Yeah, and it's just calming, and it's calming also had the calming effect on our cities, opening up green spaces, as you know, and it's also been a huge boon to you know Amsterdam tourism. You know, it feeds the economy in other ways. Or when you think of Venice, these cities that. Wouldn't be the cities that they are without that. Exactly. Without having automobiles, they no, become exactly. the beautiful you, cities. When you're in Venice, you need to be on a boat, and when you're in Amsterdam, you need to be on a bike. So I had my my father-in-law and my mother-in-law visiting, and we put them on this cargo bike, and they had a great time. Just、uh, she was in the she was in the front, he was on the bike. This is really the way to see, I think, basically any city. In, in American cities, in particular, I spent some time in Memphis on a project where I don't think I have seen any bikes in the months I was there. And we were even stopped by the police when we, we decided to walk back from our office one day. We were stopped by the police, who were asking if they could help us, whether we would, had misplaced our car or whether we'd broken down, because they didn't, really didn't understand why we were walking. So it's, it grows into culture, this mode. And certainly in the states, if you don't have a car, you really have a social disadvantage. 
think it would be good if, if cities accommodate more multimodality. I, I know for a fact that Amsterdam is, has a cycling embassy. So is actively, there's a group who is actively promoting cycling culture. And many, for example, South American cities have had visits from this, uh, this bicycle embassy and uh, yeah, are explaining about the bicycle culture and how it's promoted. It's, uh, it's very cool. And I think it has, as we say, social aspects. It can also have a political act, uh, aspects. As you, it's noted for the cycling culture that, as you pointed out, we have these bike sharing schemes. Already, it's socialist. It's about sharing. And I think that's what we definitely need to cultivate more in the political arena is this idea of not yours is yours and mine is mine and so competitive zero-sum game, whereas we can get further by sharing and being more collective. I agree. And I think we try to take it even one step further. Uh, so I, I love the bike sharing schemes. I always, when I'm in a foreign city, I always try the scheme, I, I see how it works. But I think as a collective, this is a really good thing, but I think as a collective, uh, our part, our mission really is to prevent the next crisis. Currently we have the, the CO2 crisis, or we have a Corona crisis, of course, of course as well, but uh, currently we're really in, in, in the, the CO2 crisis, in the climate crisis, and really hope we can battle that and, and, and be successful. And circularity, of course, contributes to that. You reduce, if you have a good circular product, you reduce your CO2 emissions. But I think the next crisis will be the materials crisis. And I think collectively we have a responsibility to, in the way we deal with materials. And if I look at our circular projects, then um, the solution that we're now making, the components of the solution are just as valid for this circular e-bike as that they could be for a uh, laundry machine. The whole point of moving from a zero-sum game, like who makes the best, cheapest product at the lowest price and can find loads labor somewhere around the world so someone can be happy with a new laundry machine and buy another one in five years. Uh, that's not going to work for us. That's going to cause a next crisis. I think a lot of the things we're doing right now, a lot of the things, aspects of this product will also be brought to the consumer. So the consumer who will ride uh, this future bike will be made very much aware of his or her a role in and responsibility in using these materials that you can now use. So it will, whether you lease the bike or have a subscription model or however you use it, we will make the user very aware of their responsibility in using it and to be also being made to also make sure that this bike or these materials of this bike are being returned as best as they as they, as they can and will also set up incentives for people to do it. So I think we have responsibility and there's a collective thinking but there's also very much the way in that money makes the world go around and money certainly gives a strong direction to many people. So we'll also use incentives to make people use their product in a better way, in a more responsible way. And I think that's a growing perception. I don't know if you're familiar with repair cafes that have been growing everywhere. I, I love it. I, I really grow up repair, trying to repair everything. Up until recently, I also even did main, I also own a car and I did the maintenance myself on this car, even though it's, it is really a seriously serious daily driver. I think it just gives your, it makes for a different relationship with materials, with the products around you. And, and I think if we can bring that responsibility, but also that awareness back to people, because it's been there before, before mass consumption and buying more sneakers because you can, because you want to fill your wardrobe with it. There was, of course, a time where we tried to repair our own shoes or where we invested in good shoes and then brought them to be mended uh, when they were not. So I think we can try to bring that back in a, in a modern way and try to get people to contribute to this 
former way of valuing materials and, and products. And, yeah, and I think in that way, we can really reduce both CO2 problems, but also try to prevent the next crisis, which is around material shortage all around. Well, it's great to hear your description. And really, for me, it's very entertaining to hear your comparison between the cultures and how dependent they are on automobiles across different countries all around the world. Like personally, I come from China and comparing to the city that I grew up with, which is called Shenzhen, the San Francisco of China, and comparing that to Philadelphia, where I currently live, it's very, very different. Like we have similar to what Amsterdam have, which is a a separated biking lanes. But in America, I, I don't really see that happening anywhere. And something else I want to ask you is that in my city, like we are a coastal city and with climate change and there is a growing number of typhoons, that kind of poses some dangers for cyclists. And I'm kind of wondering, like we need people to engage in cycling to bring down their carbon consumption. But at the same time, though, the carbon that we are already putting into the atmosphere are already causing all those natural disasters that is impacting the cyclability of cities. So I want to hear your opinions on that. That's interesting. I hadn't heard that aspect before. I think obviously cycling is part of the solution, right? It's part of uh, a solution to stop climate change. So if we get more adoption, that will be be better. What I do see in the Netherlands, of course, we are uh, very much afraid of the sea. (laughs) And we've uh, dealt with it at the moment. Or let's say we thought, I grew up in a generation where I thought we have dealt with it. But now it's become a topic again. So... Sea level rise on average means that once every so many years you have a superstorm and we can still get in trouble uh, for parts of the Netherlands. We see it now also with the extreme rains in Europe, which end up in our, uh, our rivers, that we do have areas in the Netherlands where the rivers can overflow. And we're constantly working on, on the safety of that. Now there are discussions about reserving gigantic amounts of money to increase the sea dikes again. And I have a house which is uh, definitely below sea level. <laughs> we uh, Recently, I was in a water museum and we could simulate uh, what would happen if the dikes would break. And well, at least we could still live in the top floor of our, our house, but uh, like the bottom two were uh, below uh, below water. So, And this has become, uh, joking about it a little bit, but this, is, this has become a new topic of conversation. This was not on the table 10 years ago. Nobody was talking about this. People were maybe talking about sustainability, but they were not talking about oh, hang on, I need to start worrying about the sea level and about the dikes, about the stuff that we thought we had solved. Uh, there. In the Netherlands, there was a big catastrophe in 1953, a uh, big flood, and a very a big part of the country was flooded. There were dikes there before, but this was a superstorm with a, a special tide, and then I think two provinces were underwater, two of the 12, uh, let's say two out of 12 areas in the Netherlands were underwater, something like that. Really big disaster, and then we put in place many higher dikes and special lock systems. And we sort of, everybody feels that we'd solved it. And now it's, now it's back on the table. And actually people are already talking about, okay, now when I choose a place to live with my family, should I choose a place in the West where we are low and below sea level? Or do I choose a place maybe, do I move my family maybe to the East where we have higher ground and not the risk of, of flooding in a sense? 
And this, this is bizarre for the Netherlands. This is bizarre. This is now all of a sudden become a factor. Corona, I think, has because in the east we have more a countryside, less cities, so there's more space to live. And also, Corona has brought this sense of decreased dependency on being close to your workplace. So you see a lot of people moving buying old properties in the east of the Netherlands now over the last two years. And I think there might also be a factor of climate safety in there. And it's, it's just totally new that it's back on the table. So it's, uh, I find it very interesting. I think it will help increase the urgency of people to change their uh, behavior. But still, in everything we do, it's sometimes quite difficult to find an alternative. You can't always, there's not always a good alternative for something you, you, you need to do. I, still, I think there are also still many people who can make the easy choices. Go for, you know, eat less meat, go, go, by, go by train, go by bicycle more often, those kind of things. So it's very interesting. You mentioned the future of cities. Yes, we do have this mobility where we things are decentralized. And I'm so I'm wondering if one of some of the solutions that I, I don't know if you work with city planners or some things that are happening in the Netherlands that you like to share and you think is exciting that might be implemented elsewhere. No, I can't say that we're working uh, with that. There are I've been at a couple of bike in the city uh, meetups, so there are regular open debates about it. I can't say that we're part of that. I think um, just like any city, Amsterdam is still transforming old industrial areas into living areas. So that is certainly what we see also where our factory is. What we would really like is a city to be a mix of things. Um, So also keep local workmanship and local production alive. I think the city also really embraces that. But of course, it's also a bit of the, the public, the city against the big money. Investors who've bought who've bought all the, the ground and want to build real estate. Yeah, it's, it's just like any other city where you have this conflict between wanting to maintain a livable, workable city and not a city where there's just luxury living and work and everybody else lives outside. Right? And, um, I see... Yes. It's a very creative city, as I see, and I was always impressed, and I have friends there, the number of designers and artists and just forward thinking. And something that's on, of course, all of our minds now because of COP26, and I'm not sure how much we should look towards COP26 or we have to be reliant and resilient ourselves to to send signals there. Mm -hmm. Like maybe COP26, as some say to me, is not really... It doesn't happen there necessarily. It's just like taking the temperature. I don't know what your reflections are on that and what your hopes are beyond COP26. Yeah, no, so I think the description is quite apt. I think uh, it may be just be uh, taking the temperature, although I'm still hopeful that things will come out. I think the debate is five years ago, there weren't so many climate marches. There weren't so many engaged people as there are now. So I really see an increase in activism around climate change. So that's that's a good thing. I think that is a sign of something. But I also see that there are so many simple things that we can easily do on a country level, even, to which would have so much, much effect. We can put tax on, we can use tax VAT even as a tool for many things, and we just don't. Yes, there is a lower VAT for repair, but it's gone up. In the Netherlands, it's been increased from 6 to 9%. I really don't see the reason for that. That's counterproductive. And I think we could, you can do so much more with, even without bringing big reforms in tax. Of course, you have the X-Tax project, but that's going to require a big change. But even without that, we can do so much more with just uh, VAT on or getting the, applying the lower VAT level on a wider range of products or activities rather than the high VAT level, which would really give those 
products and services a, a price benefit, which would steer people. So much, and this is just an example, there's so much that you can do quite easily, which isn't done, even on the subsidy arrangements from our government for circularity. You would say those are there, lots being organized and stuff. So there was uh, a subsidy, but the subsidy was aimed at using waste to turn it into something else. Of course, that's also what we started with, but this was 10, 11 years ago. And this subsidy, and we said, no, no, we're going to make a design which designs out waste, right? We're not designing with waste, designing out waste. And if you look at the technical universities, they're all teaching this, to design out waste, not design with waste. That's nice. It's temporarily doing something, but the future is really to design product loops without waste. And the answer to, of this uh, government subsidy was simply, no, 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 no that's not uh, part of our program. Yes, this is a circular program, but you need to do something with waste. You need, don't need to. You shouldn't design out waste. It's just not part of this subsidy. And this this way of this such a square way of thinking is really limiting. I think if we certainly on, on the government side and on the tech side, if we can be if we could be a bit more creative and just try some things a bit quicker, maybe we could get a much faster transition. But things tend to take extremely long and climate's changing fast we need to change the rules fast as well to keep up and this is really what i'm missing and i do hope that this increased urgency climate marches all of these things do give some kind of basis for some increased response on the government side that is a great take and and you're correct like in our sustainability and so economy class like we are talking about design at waste like well, the first step is, of course, to use waste to make something new again. But like the highest level of circularity is really just about designing out waste. Like eliminating the word waste from our dictionary is our goal. And in your overview about your company, like you really discuss a lot about engaging stakeholders like other companies, customers, and local communities. I just want to ask if there are any challenges, and especially like one of the major stakeholders in all of this is your employees, and especially your manufacturers. And in a world that is increasingly being automated by AI's manufacturing job is like disappearing, and this one livelihood that once supported millions is now just disappearing, and it's stirring up another class war, as Marx would put it. And like, in your opinion, how do you balance AI and human labor? Actually, if you look at the bicycle industry, and it may be hard to believe, but this is actually not that robotized. Wheel production is quite nicely robotized, but assembly of bikes is still pretty much like classic assembly on a line with some, some special tools. That's also the way we do it. But what, what I think, if you speak about balance, uh, and oh, by the way, AI... The way we use AI is much more, again, to help us see how we can protect materials. So we actually have a data scientist that work and we will use machine learning, possibly AI, to detect patterns which cause defects. So we will use that to help our system. We hope to prevent defects, prevent material loss. But when you talk about balance and talk about impact on employees, I think a good circular initiative has the ability to balance the work in making a product a bit better across the world right now. So right now, I think there are many Asian factories which are like under capacity. They have much more demand than they can meet. Certainly in the bike sector has exploded. And in the Netherlands, I think low-skilled people, less highly employed people, are having the most difficulty finding jobs. And if you're, as 
a lot of work. So if you can, if you're an electrotechnician or if you're, if you have a, a good education, you have a, a skill, then there's plenty of work. But for a group of people who have not finished certain educations, it's quite difficult to find work in, in, in Western Europe. So we want to rebalance this work, rebalance this labor. So we maybe initially we do produce some products in Asia, but through our setup of our products, we will do the, the secondary production step, which is remanufacturing after you get a product back. This is what also will be local country by country in the local plant. I think this will also reshift the whole way we currently source and design and produce our products. So you need to know, we're thinking about what happens to this product after two, three, four life cycles. What process should we have in place? What should the product look like? What, how many steps are there in the process to remanufacture this locally? When do we need new materials, possibly from Asia? So this is really, uh, it's also sort of part of, part of a more like a almost degrowth, less you know, geopolitical thing where this automatically becomes a better balanced solution for the world. That is really enlightening and very insightful. And just one more thing, and I'm asking this question, not just for me, but for millions of our fans, maybe here in the US, maybe around the globe. But do you have any plans on going global? Because I, I really want to buy one of your bikes, but when I went on your <laughs> website, you only sell to UK and Netherlands. So um, do you have any plans on going global? There have been some bikes traveled around the world. So yeah, we can ship by special request, but that's not uh, the solution you're looking for. Now, certainly with our new product, um, we plan to really quickly expand to the rest of Europe because uh, our new product is a lot more scalable than the current setup. It's also has a much bigger impact in that sense or reduces impact better. So yeah, global is the next step. So uh, maybe in a few, maybe in a few years, could very, could very well be. First, we set out to conquer Europe in the next uh, three, four years, but uh, who knows? Who knows? If you really can't wait, then send us a message because I think we've even delivered bikes in Australia and Thailand and Mexico before. So I know some people in New York are cycling on our bikes. Send us a, shoot us a message on our info box and then you can see what we can do. Well, that's wonderful. I hope that it becomes available in Europe first and then uh, the rest of the world. You know, as you think about the future, and I know you're very forward thinking, and you reflect upon the lessons that were important to you, the teachers that meant something to you. You know, what are some of those things that really helped you become the business person you are today? And as you speak to your you know, children, what are some things that you like them to know, preserve and remember? That's a nice question. I think growing up, my father was also an engineer. He was a, but he was more like road and infrastructure builder. And my brother is as well. But I come from a family of engineers. I'm a mechanical engineer myself, trained as a mechanical engineer. I just really grew up in um, with a mindset of everything is not automatically waste when it doesn't doesn't work. We first try. We first we try to repair it. Um, so that was really my father imprinting that in me. Uh, and I think for years that's been almost unpopular and now it's come back and it's great. I've always been doing this and now it's like a major asset to change the world again. So it's, I really like that. It was quite interesting. I, I did a partly bilingual education in my secondary school and we had a, a subject called environmental studies. And this was a, this was a subject which doesn't, didn't exist in the Netherlands. It was just a, taught on international schools. But it was all about pollution, sustainability, and I was 12. <laughs> it was quite cool. So back then, and now I'm uh, 41, so this is about 30 years ago, I was already being taught about that. And I, 
yeah, it's quite unique. I don't know if other English, it was sort of an Anglo-Saxon education. So that I think that helped. And uh, when I finished my mechanical engineering studies, I felt that I had learned a lot about mechanical engineering, about technical stuff, logistics also, I had a sort of logistics master. But I felt I didn't know so much about business yet. And I always had this feeling that I would sometime at some point become an entrepreneur or perhaps even an inventor or something like that. So I felt I really shouldn't go to work for one of the big industrial companies like Philips or ASML or ASML or something like that, but really learn more about business. And that's why I went to work for a consulting company just to get more experience in, in different businesses. And I think uh, that was a really lucky choice. I did a lot of work for, for factories, a lot of supply chain strategy production projects where things always revolved around the products and I learned, I just learned so much. And then at a certain point, I worked on this remanufacturing strategy project, which really kicked me away. And the interesting thing at the same time, or shortly after that, there was, of course, the downturn in 2010 and 11. And I got an opportunity to travel because there was not so much work at my, my company. So I decided to do it. And I think one of the most impactful things, I traveled to Australia, of course, bad because you have to go by plane but that was not clear even at that point just not so much spoken of but australia was really interesting to me I, when i was there i read a lot about the country and also read about how not so long years long ago like a few hundred years ago it was a, a quite green country and it's really been degraded to what it is now by three four hundred years of some rabbits being unleashed being released and, and grazing everything off and then the, the fertile topsoil literally blew into the ocean leaving behind what is there now which is a continent which can barely support the 18 or so million people which live there and, and this is in the Netherlands, uh, we have about 17 million people. And this is a continent which has 18 million people and can hardly support it. The rivers are drying up. It's just a, it's like putting a magnifying glass on what happens to the world. And in a very short time, it's happened there. I also learned that Australia was one of the biggest coal exporters, which then went to China, which then went into our products in the Netherlands. So is it like a really maybe more people who are active in sustainability have this moment where it just all comes together and, whoa. This is intense. I need to maybe change something or do something with it. I think that trip was really my sustainability awakening moment combined with the sustainable concepts I had just come across. So that really launched me for basically the trip we're now on with, with Roots. Yeah. It's very interesting trip and it's a, it's a wonderful mission and it's lovely that you can be both have one foot in business, but also affecting these ecological consumer changes that affects so many aspects of life and society. Thank you to Mentorhoven and Ruth Spikes for your circular projects and solutions that help us rethink our current business models to better serve humanity and the natural world. You've given us so much to think about the future of cities and how we can move towards a waste-free world. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thanks for being here. It was uh, great to join. One Planet Podcast is produced by The Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Yen Song Li, with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producer on this podcast was Yen Song Li. Digital media coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this program. If you would like to get involved in the One Planet Podcast, and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at
www.ghostbusters.org. Thank you for listening.